0: Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This is part two of 313 Carl Drive. If you have not listened to part one yet, please go back and listen to that. Inside the courtroom, the last model was about to testify. She would turn out to be the one that David was the most obsessed with. David's parents, Laverne and Charles Hendricks, fully supported their son. Charles was interviewed by a news reporter outside of the courtroom. I support my son 100%. I am convinced, like so many others, that the authorities have wrongly accused David. But I know that most people would expect that from a father. I just know that if my son were guilty, I would want him to be punished. What about the testimony showing David had made advances on some of the models he employed? The reporter asked. He's not perfect, Charles Hendricks answered. Neither am I. We are all sinners. That's why we need a savior. In the witness box, Carla Webb, 26-year-old blonde beauty with a remarkable figure, was ready to testify. She worked as an aerobics instructor and part-time actress, dancer, and model. In August of 1983, she was told by a photographer that Hendricks would like to use her as a model for his back brace. In October, that same photographer told her that Hendricks would like to stop by her home to talk about the modeling job. Carla's girlfriend was there with her when he came by, and she tried on different color leotards. Hendricks selected two of them and then arranged to meet her at his office at 8 o'clock at night for the brace fitting. There was some small talk about her acting and modeling work, and then they began fitting the brace. She said David had told her she was a bit more well endowed than the other models that have used the brace. Carla said she blushed, and he said, don't get me wrong, I enjoy your figure. He told her he would have to make some measurements. He pulled out a paper-type gown and asked her to put it on. She had thought she was going to get measured in her bodysuit. She told him the bodysuit fit rather snugly, and couldn't they just do it in that? He told her that he needed to do it just like a regular patient. He said, this is standard procedure. All the models go through it. I'm a doctor. Carla said that she felt that he had said this because she was obviously nervous. Dozier said, just tell us what he said and what you said. Did he say he was a doctor? He said, I believe he said, I'm a doctor. I can't use the exact term. I know he did not say he was a chiropractor but I was led to believe he was a doctor. I'm going to object and move to strike, said Jennings. Dozier told the witness, you are only allowed to testify to what he said, not what you believe. He said it was standard procedure. I would be treated just as a normal patient. And well, I can't say that he said he was a doctor. What happened next? At that time, I went into the restroom and put on the gown. It was baggy it was slit and i put the slit in the back so it was completely covering the front i still had my skirt pantyhose and shoes on he asked me to come over to his desk and stand next to him to do the measurements at that time i saw the form it just had a body on it figures and lines he told me he was going to make some marks on my back He then asked me to lower my skirt a little bit because he needed to make marks a little bit lower on the lower part of my spine. We were talking about acting, where I'm from, while he was making the marks. I mentioned I'm from Kentucky and I like the Bloomington area a lot, but I didn't like the weather as much as I do in Kentucky. He said he needed to make some marks on my front and I needed to turn the gown around. I went back to the bathroom to turn the gown around and came back out with the gown closed and walked back out there. He then began making marks on my midriff, lower midriff, the tummy area. He pulled the gown back, but I wasn't exposed. The gown was moved back slightly. He made marks on this area. The witness pointed to her rib area. As he made the marks, I could see he was writing down little measurements. And then he would take a tape measure and measure from one spot to another spot and record that. He moved up to the top part of my shoulders and this area. She motioned to the area above her ample breasts. The gown is still not actually open. He's making marks and writing them down. And then he told me he would need to open the gown and make a few more marks. What happened then? Well, at this point, I guess I was looking a little more nervous because he said it was okay once again. This was standard procedure. We began talking a little bit about me and where I went to school and all of this. And then he told me he would have to pull the gown back, and he pulled it back off to the side. So that exposed your breasts for the first time. Yes, it did. Right after he opened the gown, he began making marks directly above my breasts. And then he turned me a little to the side, and he made marks there. He measured a couple of marks on the side. On the side of what? Dozier asked. The side of my breasts. Level with my breasts on the side. He was still writing the marks down. The marks on my breast, though, were not corresponding. He wrote them at the bottom of the paper. That's the first time I noticed marks had not corresponded with the little figure on the paper. Dozier backed away a little bit looked at Hendricks, and leaned against the defense table. Did his hands come in contact with your breasts when he was making marks on the side of your breasts? Yes, with the side of my breasts it did, where he was making the mark. He then proceeded to make a mark underneath my breasts. By this time, he has made maybe 20 marks in and around, and then he started to make one in the center. That's when I suggested to him that I had a 9.30 rehearsal but I really needed to get there early, and it was getting kind of late. I felt like I needed to go. Did you notice anything unusual about him at that time? Yes, I did. He didn't go back and mark anything on the paper at that time, and he had not made eye contact with me or talked with me for a while about weather and things like this. He was also sweating. Carla again told Hendrick she had to go to rehearsal. David told her to wait a minute, and he got up and grabbed the crucifix and told her they should try it. Carla said he wanted to show her how it moved when a patient bent over and how his brace was different from others. Carla told him that was really neat, but she had to go. He then grabbed another brace and told her to try this, and he put it on her. He then told her she had scoliosis. She had never heard this before. He showed her on a chart where on her spine it was and then came up behind her and touched her lower back with one hand and her abdomen with the other. He was moving his hand up along my back, my spine, and telling me this is where it's located. He moved his hand in the front as he went up my back and he was touching my breasts. At that moment, I told him, I really have to go. He pulled me in towards him, putting both hands on my back I patted his shoulders and pushed him back. Again, I said, I really need to go. When she looked at him next, his eyes were red and they were teary. He told her he was a good Christian. He also said he was married. I told him, it's okay, Carla Webb said. Nothing happened. She went to the bathroom to get dressed, but she could still hear Hendricks outside talking. He said, my wife can't find out. Nothing happened, she told him. When she was dressed, she went to get her purse in the office. He showed her some brochures of other models. She told him she was interested in modeling and to give the agency a call when he was ready for the photo shoot. She was walking out the door and he said, If you ever need anybody to talk to, just give me a call. She said, Okay. I have a plane, he said. If you want to go to Kentucky some afternoon, I can take you there. She told him, that's great, and she left. Hendricks called her a few days later and said he was going out of town, but he was very much interested in using her for some photo work. A week after that, he just showed up at her house. He told her that he said he couldn't reach her by phone. He had just gotten back into town, and he told her to pick out a flesh-colored or pink leotard and to save the receipt, and he would reimburse her for it. A friend of hers was there when he stopped by. He stopped by a couple more times, and each time, he asked if she had picked out a leotard and reassured her that he wanted her to model for him. He said he had narrowed it down to sometime in November. The next time he called was by telephone, and he told her it was set for November 12th. He said he also had an abdominal brace he wanted her to model as well, and that they would need to do another fitting. She told him she would be very busy and didn't think she would be able to see him before the photos. He said he really wanted to get a fitting for this. She did not want to do any more fittings for him. She only wanted to do the modeling where there would be a photographer present at the studio that her modeling agency owned. Do you recall hearing about the tragedy that occurred the following week? Dozier asked. Carla said she did. Do you recall what day you heard about that? Wednesday. Wednesday. Did you ever then go for the modeling photography session on Saturday, November 12th? No, I received a letter through the mail, a memo from his office, stating that the session would be postponed indefinitely due to the recent tragedy, and they would be back in contact with me. Ed Roman was called to the stand. He was the man that purchased David Hendricks' patient care business. Dozier asked him to show how he would fit a cash brace to a patient using a daughter of one of his employees as the patient. Roman showed him how it was done. It was clear the fitting process did not take long. Under questioning, Roman said for just the fitting portion of a patient's appointment, it would only take three to four minutes at most. Dozier asked him what he had his patients wear for the fitting. He told them just the clothes they have on when they come in. He fits it over their clothes. The only exception would be something like a bulky sweater. He stated the cash brace was one of the easiest to fit. The timings of the murders did seem suspect. There was debate on what stomach contents meant as to how long after they ate that they were murdered. At first, it seemed to point to them being murdered close to 9 p.m. or soon after, which was well before Hendricks left for his business trip. However, this was disputed by defense experts. Also, just how accurate the science of stomach content really was and how much it could be relied on at all was in dispute. Other things seem suspect as well, such as Hendricks leaving late at night to drive for appointments the next day, meaning he would not get much sleep for set appointments, which were really cold calls, not appointments. So the whole alibi is not much of one because it is very convenient that he set up a road trip to start at night and his family is murdered that same night. Prosecution pointed out that there was no history of David leaving for work road trips late at night at any time ever before. David called the house while on his road trip and did not get his wife on the phone. He called relatives, his secretary, a neighbor, and authorities and was told there was no accidents in the area. Despite this, David left the Red Roof Inn, saying there had been an emergency, even though he did not know that yet. He called again on the way home multiple times. The prosecution said he was calling to see if anyone had found out what he already knew, if anyone had found the bodies yet. One defense expert testified that all the evidence was consistent with two weapons being used on Grace Hendricks. One would be an axe, machete, or cleaver-type weapon, and the other would be consistent with a knife. He went on to testify that two weapons were used on Benji and Susan. They were trying to make the point that the use of multiple weapons could indicate multiple perpetrators. Dozier, in cross-examination, asked if a single individual could have done it. The expert said that yes, it was possible for a single individual to do it, He would have to switch from one weapon to the other, but he could do it. The defense had experts testify that there were things in the crime scene that were consistent with a professional burglary. If you remember, the prosecution had an expert testify that the burglary appeared to have been staged. The defense had numerous character witnesses that testify that Hendricks had a loving marriage and that David was a good husband and a good father. Jennings brought Hendricks up to testify on his own behalf. In the opening remarks, David's change of appearance had been brought up as evidence towards motive of a man looking to start a new life. When David took the stand, he explained his change of appearance in the 16 months leading up to the time of arrest. He said that he was 275 pounds when they moved from Stanford to Bloomington in the summer of 1982. His doctor put him on a diet because of his high blood pressure and that it had increased. He made a change to be healthier, and Susan encouraged it. He explained the change in his hairstyle was because of a free haircut coupon that he got in the mail, and he went with the haircut the stylist had recommended. He said that he shaved his mustache on their anniversary in 1983, and he did it for Susie, because she had never really liked the mustache. He went over the timeline of the night of the murders. He talked about taking the kids to Chuck E. Cheese and then a bookmobile. He said they played hide and seek when they got home just before they got ready for bed. And he said that Susan got home around 1030 p.m. And that's when he heard the garage door open and knew she was home. Jennings asked Hendrick how long before that was he aware that Susan would be going to the baby shower. David said it was almost a week before. He asked David about each of the model's testimonies and if they were different from what he remembered. David stated that he did give Carla Webb a hug, but he did not say that his wife could not find out or anything like that. He also said he did not remember offering her a flight to Kentucky. He said he was sure that he did not tell Tammy Ledbetter that he was a doctor. He was then asked about Elizabeth Tomlinson. David said he pretty much disagreed with most of her testimony. He said she was the one who came out in a towel and just dropped it. He had asked her to be topless, but not all the way nude. She came out that way, dropped the towel, and never replaced it. He said he does not remember telling her that he had affairs, and he was sure he didn't say it because it wasn't true. He said that he does not remember making a pass at her or trying to kiss her while she was showing him the sights of Phoenix. The defense lawyer asked him if he had been attracted to any of the models. He said yes, obviously. Jennings asked him if that happened more than one time, and he said yes, too. He was then asked if that in any way diminished his feelings for Susan, and Hendricks said it definitely did not. Jennings asked him if he killed Susan Hendricks. David said no. He asked him if he killed his children. David said no. The next day, Hendricks was on the stand again. Dozier cross-examined David and, through many questions, got him to admit that he was physically attracted to all of the models, but he only did something about the attraction with two of them. Carla Webb, and Lee Ann Wilmoth. He said that he hugged Carla. With Lee Ann, he said he touched her breast while he was massaging her. She had said in her testimony that she had rebuffed his attentions, and David said that was correct. She did. Dozier pointed out that she had also testified that he tried to kiss her. Hendricks said that he didn't remember that, but he was attracted at the time, so it was possible. He said he found all the models attractive, but was not attracted to them in that way, just two or three of the models. So he admitted to some of the things the models had testified to, but not to all of it. Some things in favor of David Hendricks. They could not find any blood on David Hendricks or his belongings. There were some fingerprints and footprints that couldn't be identified, that had been found in the house. This brought up the possibility of someone or more than one person entering the home and killing the family. However, there were no signs of forced entry or a break-in, but David did say it was possible he had forgotten to lock the patio door. Some things in question. There was the possibility the children had been killed much earlier in the evening before their mother came home from the baby shower. That would have made it easier for David Hendricks to do all the killings himself, including using two different weapons. There was the possibility that Hendricks left the weapons there so they would know two weapons were used and that he had hoped they would conclude that there was more than one perpetrator from this. The reason Hendricks admitted to some things with Carla Webb, such as hugging her, but not to other things, like offering her a ride on his airplane to Kentucky, is that it would show he had been more than temporarily tempted by Carla Webb. If he were to admit that, it would show he had intentions of pursuing that relationship further. He was basically living a double life in the way that he wanted to appear in family life and with friends and fellow members of the Plymouth Brethren but he was also pursuing sexual relationships with these models in an increasing intensity as he learns what he can get away with, and it keeps escalating up to the time his wife and children were murdered. As to why he didn't just get a divorce, you just have to look at his religion and what his reputation was and what it would mean to him. The defense went over the model's testimony and said that even though David was sinning in that area, It did not mean he would murder his family. Just because he made some bad choices did not make him a murderer. There had been many witnesses that testified to what a great father and husband David was, and the family had had such a great, happy life together. The defense reminded them that not one piece of evidence was linked to the defendant. It was all circumstantial. The prosecution came back saying, There is no single thing that you can point to, such as an eyewitness or a confession or something like that. But that doesn't mean circumstantial evidence isn't evidence, because of course it is. The crime scene was done by an intelligent man who carefully planned so there would be no direct evidence that would point to him. The defense proposes some kind of strange theory that some unknown burglar or burglars picked this house out of all the houses in Bloomington and happened to pick this night the one night he was leaving on a business trip and happened to pick the same lucky night that he must have forgotten to lock the back patio door. That they came in to commit a burglary and for some reason they took the axe out of the garage and the knife out of the kitchen and went upstairs and hacked all the people to death. The jury took five and a half hours of deliberation over two days. They had spent one night in a hotel during this time. After everyone had arrived in court, the judge asked the jury foreman if they had reached a decision. He said they had. They had found him guilty of all of the murders. The sentencing hearing would resume three weeks later in Bloomington. Dr. Richard Rappaport, a psychiatrist, was called to testify in the sentencing portion of the trial about David Hendricks. He had spent 12 hours examining David over the course of two days. He has borderline personality disorder, Some of the characteristics of a borderline have to do with individuals' expression of anger, their intensity of anger, the impulse controls, expression of impulsive behavior, difficulties with identity, sometimes in the nature of their sexual orientation, their means of using defense mechanisms. They tend to use primitive defense mechanisms such as splitting. Judge Boehner asked him what splitting was. Splitting. It's a method of handling anxiety by acting as if feeling is not part of the individual. It's split off from the person's psyche. It doesn't integrate into their total being. In a person who is splitting, they cannot tolerate the anxiety brought up by hating the same person that they love. So they split off that feeling in their mind. Dozier asked Rappaport to identify the borderline characteristics that he found in Hendrix. The first characteristic was his affect. I did not see any evidence of intense anger, rather the opposite, an almost completely unemotional, affectless mood and demeanor. I still don't know whether or not he committed this crime. I would consider the fact that if he did, it was while he was having a brief psychotic episode. Dozier asked him to continue with what he found in David Hendricks. The most outstanding characteristics are his flat affect and his coldness towards the situation he was in. It's called blunt affect. Dozier asked whether he considered him dangerous to others. The characteristics of the borderline do not necessarily mean he is a dangerous person. There are a lot of people who are borderline and functioning well in society who are not doing things that are dangerous. How is it that a person with a borderline personality can function in society? Dozier asked. Well, he has many very positive qualities and characteristics. He is very bright and personable, aggressive, inventive, He is able to use those abilities to deal with society and with life. How would a person who has this diagnosis react under stress? Dozier asked him. That's where the difficulty comes in. It's a progressive problem. Unresolved tension builds up. Acting out in the nature that this person might have done in this case usually doesn't relieve the tension. The tension mounts up again, and it could be repeated. Are you indicating that if a person with a borderline disorder kills once, that there is a possibility that they could do it again when placed under stress? Yes. And on what do you base that conclusion? Some of my experience with people who have murdered in the past and some of the things that I have read. A few excerpts from the prosecution before sentencing. That axe was a weapon of choice showing the deliberation of the defendant. It was chosen with care for its intended purpose. It was used in a deliberate fashion. No blows appeared to miss any of the targets. To call these murders brutal could well be the understatement of 1985. The force used by David Hendricks in killing his children drove their very lifeblood all the way across the bedroom onto walls and furniture and into closets. And that weapon that he used was calculated to inflict horrifying injuries, specifically about the face and head. Two of the victims, the youngest, literally had their faces chopped to a state that you couldn't stand to look at them, but for a few horrifying seconds. The brutality was inflicted by the defendant, who watched with each one of the blows as the axe struck the body of his children and his wife. The bodies of his loved ones shuddered and reacted each time he struck them, and he stood there and watched as that happened on each of those repeated blows. That viciousness, we referred to that as overkill, and I'm not sure that does justice to it, but that viciousness, particularly on Benji and Grace Hendricks, is indicative of the most wanton cruelty that McLean County has ever experienced. These victims were no match at all for David Hendricks, even if he hadn't used a weapon, and yet he has so clearly shown his disregard for human life in other areas. He seemed to have some contempt for anything that posed an irritation to him, he lied repeatedly to prospective sales customers and to models, but probably first of all he lied to himself. He convinced himself, Judge, that there were four human beings whose lives served no purpose here on Earth. Very simply and grotesquely put, he reduced four human lives to blocks of wood. That's what he saw them as, blocks of wood to be chopped on. These four people deserved to live. They didn't deserve that. And for some reason, and perhaps we haven't gotten to the very bottom of that reason yet, the thought that he had the right or authority to end lives that God created. The thought he had the right or authority to end lives that God had created. He went on. The defendant did quite a bit of calculating. He calculated where he was in this life and where really he would rather be. Then he calculated what it would take him to get him where he would rather be, and then decided that the price wasn't too great to pay. In David Hendricks' own statement, just before sentencing, he continued to state that he was innocent, not guilty of the murders. He did go on to say that the court knows, he knows, the state knows, everyone involved in the case knows, the evidence was so very, very slim." and almost everyone was totally surprised and astonished at the verdict of those 12 people. He thought the court should look at that. During the judge's statement before sentencing, he said that based on the evidence admitted at trial against the defendant, he was not personally convinced that Hendricks was proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He therefore imposed the sentence, Natural life imprisonment, without the right or availability of mandatory supervised release, parole, or other form of early release. He had escaped the death penalty and was sentenced to life. This was far from over though. There would be more twists and turns in David Hendricks' life, and in this case. There was an appeal, of course, and on June 19, 1986, the three judges unanimously upheld the conviction. Because it was a unanimous decision, there was surprise when a few months later, the Illinois Supreme Court agreed to review the case. The Hendricks and Palmer families joined to offer a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of our loved ones. Some people were curious why this hadn't been done earlier. It was thought that the Illinois Supreme Court would rule by fall of 1987, but by the fall of 1988, the court still hadn't issued an opinion. During this time, the Hendricks and Palmer families had received no real response to their offer of a $10,000 reward, so they doubled it to 20000 And there was the fact that David Hendricks now had plans to remarry. This is the end of part two. In part three, we will continue with a new trial and David Hendrick's personal life. Thanks again for listening. I'd like to cite one of the major sources for this episode, Reasonable Doubt by Steve Vogel. It's a huge book, a really good book, extremely well written, and with so much more than I could ever cover here. It's Reasonable Doubt, by Steve Vogel. And the last name is spelled V-O-G-E-L. Also, there are numerous newspaper articles, which I will cite in the notes in the end of this episode in part three. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you are feeling generous, please take a few minutes and rate Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast with a five star on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and I'll see you in part three.